In your Bibles tonight, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 23. Most of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are dedicated to the life of one of the heroes of the Bible, a guy by the name of David. He's the same one who, when he was a kid, went mano a mano against a giant. He's the same one who was king of Israel in its golden age. And now when we come to the 23rd chapter of 2 Samuel, you can recognize that we're at the end of David's life. And this chapter is a special chapter, and you would expect it to be dramatic because the first words of the chapter are, these are the last words of David. But what surprises most people, I think, about this chapter is when you get into it, most of this chapter is about other people, not about David. It's about the heroes who serve David. And when I look at this chapter, I want to think of it as being about heroes. But the more I read it, the more I discover that this is a chapter about battles. You know, when the end of your life comes, and I hope it's a long time from now, or I hope it's a short time from now, Jesus comes tonight. Um, when the end of your life comes down here, what's probably going to write your story is what you did with the battles of life. You know, I really, after years of pastoring and after years of listening to, to Christians, I think a lot of people have the idea that when you really get to know Christ, it's like pixie dust where suddenly everything works out and you have no problems anymore. That is not at all what the Bible has to say. Your Christian life is a battle. And just in case someone is listening saying, well, if the Christian life is a battle, I don't want any part of it. Let me just say all lives are battles. The only thing is if you don't have Christ in your life, you can't sing that song we sang a few moments ago, that when it says you're surrounded in battle, you're surrounded by the power of God. That's what makes our situation different. But I just want to say, when the end of our lives come down here, what is probably going to write our story, our legacy, our epitaph, is going to be how you handle the battles. I'll speak of my dad again, but I spoke here six years ago at my dad's funeral. There were so many good things to say about him. I remember I was exhausted. I had a busy week leading up, and I had, I had to catch a flight the afternoon after my dad's service here to fly to Atlanta to speak there. So it was, it was just a crucial time. And I remember when I wrote my dad's sermon, I just didn't know what to say. And that's unusual for me because I would have thought I had you know, uh, nearly at that point, nearly 60 years of thinking of things to say about my dad, but it was like I was sort of locked out of everything. And finally, I remember uh, one Thursday afternoon, he had services on Friday here. I went down to Broadway Mortuary and I just sat in the room with my dad's body and uh, just sat there with my computer and I just began to pray and I wrote. And here's what I began to think about as God spoke to my heart. God talked to me about what a battler my dad was, how he fought how he fought for God, how he fought battles uh, of all kinds, and even the battles, the struggles that he had even in his own life. And I wrote his funeral sermon about battles. And so when I come to you tonight and I say that at the end of your life, probably what is going to write your story is not where you went to college, even though, even though that has its place. It's not going to be what you did for a living. It's not going to be the accolades and the awards. Those may be the kinds of things they put in the newspaper. But as far as your life really mattering, it's probably going to come down to the battles that you fought. And by battles, I mean the stuff in your life you would have never chosen. 
If it had been up to you, you just never would have had that issue. The divorce never would have happened. If it had been up to you, the illness, the lifelong illness, the chronic illness, it just wouldn't have come about. If it had been up to you, then your kids would have never made that wrong turn in their lives. I mean, we could go on and on and on and say the battles of life tend to be about stuff that we never would have chosen. In fact, things that happened in our life, we would have about given anything to have avoided. Tonight, when I speak about battles, let us start off with this. Battles are unpleasant. That is the very essence of battles. War is unpleasant. We tend to glorify, as we should, the heroes who've served our nation. But I think you could talk to any, talk to any Marine. You could talk to any service person in the Army or the Air Force or Navy or Coast Guard. And you could talk to any of those men and women about the battles that they were in. And they would tell you. The battles are unpleasant. And so tonight, I'm talking about dealing with the unpleasant side of life. And when you get to 2 Samuel 23, it's all about the heroes in David's army. And when you unpack the stories of the heroes, it gets into the battles that they fought. Now, I'm sure that when David reigned in Jerusalem, they had lots of picnics. I think they had county fairs and block parties. But when you read the book of 2 Samuel, you just don't read much about them. There's not a chapter about, oh, they had this big picnic. They had this big, you know, Jerusalem fair. They had this big celebration. And there's some holy celebrations that are written about. But there's a whole lot here about the battles. And that's because it's not the picnics of your life that will define you. It's the battles that you fight. But now here's where it gets interesting to me, especially since I'm a very ordinary person. When, when, when you read history, it is almost like heroes make battles. And if you think about it, it's because we have the story already fully formed. We know the end from the beginning. And so consequently, we know who the heroes are from the stories. And so when the historians pick up their pens to write, they begin the narrative early in that hero's life and show the development and say, well, they got into this battle and they won. And because of that, history tends to make us believe that heroes make battles. But for anyone who will look a little deeper into history, what you will discover, especially if you're a reader of biographies like I am, you know, if you read blurbs, it can seem like heroes make battles. But when you start reading the actual biographies of the hero, you will discover that more often than not, battles make heroes, oftentimes very ordinary people. In a battle, the battle will summon something out of them that was not apparent before. And that battle actually, as we said a few moments ago, writes their story. We'll give you a couple of examples. If you were to go to presidential historians and you were to ask the question, who is the greatest American president? I think almost universally, uh, historians, presidential historians, are you talking about like a Doris Kearns Goodwin or, or Stephen Ambrose? Or, or Michael Beschloss, you can go to any of, the, any of the presidential historians, and I think you could say universally, uh, who is the greatest president of all time, and most will say Abraham Lincoln. But why do we look at Abraham Lincoln that way? Because of the Civil War. I think if it had not been for the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln would be like the rest of the nondescript 19th century presidents whose names we have a hard time remembering. But in that crisis, the hero in him came out. It is said that the greatest hero of the 20th century was Winston Churchill. I don't think Winston Churchill would have ever been prime minister of Great Britain had it not been for World War II. 
So all I'm saying to us tonight is for those of us who feel ordinary and we, we look at the battles of life and we say, well, I could never be I could never be a person who did great things for God because I'm very ordinary. If I were a hero, I might be able to make a difference. Always remember this, church. It's not heroes that make battles. It's battles that make heroes. And so oftentimes God puts us in a scenario that's not pleasant in order that he may show the power that he puts inside of an ordinary person. Now, when I talk about battles tonight, I don't want this just to be lost in metaphor. Uh, if you grew up in church like I did, and you heard, you've heard a lot of preaching, a lot of times preachers wax metaphorical about these things, and you get very excited because the sermon's very excited, and you walk out and you say, what exactly is a battle? What exactly would a battle look like in my life? Well, let's just get real for a moment and talk about that. In a battle, and I'm talking about spiritual battle, and here's the deal. Someone says, what's spiritual warfare? Well, if you're God's child and you're in warfare, then it's spiritual warfare because God's concerned about anything you're dealing with. I mean, if you're dealing with issues in your marriage right now and you're God's daughter, then that's spiritual warfare. If, if you're dealing with issues at work and you feel opposition where you are at work and you're God's child, God's son, then that's spiritual warfare. And I'm not saying we get to the place where, like some, you see a demon behind every tree. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying if you're God's child and you're feeling opposition, and especially opposition that's not normal, then you're in spiritual warfare. It, it works like this on a practical basis. You have goals, don't you? They're, and I mean godly goals, good goals. You, you want to be healthy. You want to have a good marriage. If you're married, you, if you have children, you want to raise your kids to be men and women of honor. You want to raise them to know God. You want to raise them to be successful. So you have goals. You have objectives. But a battle is somewhere between you and where you need to be, there is opposition. So when I talk about battles tonight, I want you to think about that. I'm, going to, I'm not going to apply this message a whole lot this evening. You need to apply it to your life because your circumstances are different from the person sitting next to you. Your circumstances are different probably from anybody else's in this room. So you're going to need to take these principles and let the Holy Spirit apply them to your life in your situation. So just think about this right now. What is it that is a good goal? It's a godly goal. It's a precious goal in your life. And you can see the destination. But in between you and the destination is a problem. Those are the kinds of battles that I'm talking about tonight. Now, here's the thing. Whenever you face opposition, especially strong opposition in your life, in regard to reaching a goal that you know is of God, it's always because something valuable is at stake. You know, they don't counterfeit $1 bills. They don't counterfeit quarters. They counterfeit bills that are of great worth. And here's the deal. The more Satan fights you, it's, it's, it's an indication of how valuable what the fight is over. Many years ago when Boeing was still here in Wichita, there was some kind of air show celebration and Boeing had brought in some of the heroes of World War II, some of the pilots who flew sorties, who flew, flew missions over Berlin. And one of our men at the time was called upon by one of Boeing's news or, organizations or papers or whatever to interview a pilot who had flown missions, I believe, over Berlin. And so the young man from our church who was interviewing him talked about all the sophisticated 
uh, machinery on airplanes today, guidance systems for helping the pilot know where the target was and, and all the, you know, all the digital and all the electronic equipment. And so my friend here from New Spring asked this old pilot from World War II days, since you didn't have any of that equipment, how did you know when you were over the target? And he smiled and said, we knew we were over the target when we were, hearing, when we were feeling fire. When we, when we realized we were being fired on, we knew we were over the target. And I, and I think that's something good for all of us here tonight who are Christ followers, because oftentimes we experience negative circumstances in our life when we're trying to achieve a good goal. And it's like, well, I don't understand this because I'm trying to follow God. Well, just as there is a God who loves you, there is a devil who hates you. And the closer you get to the target, the more fire you're going to feel. That's what I'm talking about tonight. Well, I want us to look in this chapter because it isn't just that there is a list of heroes and a list of battles. I see three different kinds of battles here tonight. And so I pray that in this brief message that what we're going to unpack is going to help us all. Let me show you the first battle or the first kind of battle. Among David's soldiers is a man named Eleazar. And in verse 10... The Bible says, Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines. They were the primary enemies of Israel in those days. They lived in coastal cities in Israel. They struck down the Philistines until his hand tired and froze to the sword. And then the Bible says the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Every time I read this story, I'm always intrigued by what happened with Eleazar because there was a moment when he picked up the sword and he fought and he fought all through the morning and he fought all through lunch and he fought all through the afternoon and fought into the evening. Eleazar picked up the sword, but the Bible indicates there was a time when he was ready to put the sword down, but he couldn't put the sword down because he had fought so long that his hand froze to the sword. I always look at that text and say what happened was there was a moment when Eleazar picked up the sword, there was a moment when he took hold of the sword, and then there was a moment when the sword took hold of Eleazar. This is the battle of endurance. And you and I are going to find ourselves in some of these. If you grew up like I did in the television age, if you watch a 30-minute program on television, you know there's going to be a resolution in the last five minutes. If you watch a two-hour movie, you know there's going to be a resolution in the last 10 minutes. You just know that pretty well when you sit down to watch something. We have been trained to expect that. And I think that in our short attention span era, we have gotten comfortable with battles not lasting very long. In fact, even in our culture today, there is a sense that if a battle lasts for a while, that maybe it's just not a battle worth fighting. But ladies and gentlemen, let me just tell you something. The things that tend to matter most are oftentimes going to be a battle of endurance. It's going to be a moment that checks your staying power. I've preached this to you before. There are all kinds of power. There's money power. There's education power. There's the power of knowing the right people. But I really believe that the most important power after the power of God is staying power. And so with Eleazar, it is a battle of endurance he takes hold of the sword, but then there was a moment when the sword took hold of Eleazar simply because he refused to quit. 
I always wonder how many marriages were quit on too early. I know, I know that if you look at bygone eras, there were people that stayed in marriages that were toxic too long. I understand that. But I think for every one of those, there's probably 100 marriages where somebody quit too early. It just got difficult. And after a while, they just gave up on it. How many people gave up on a career too early? How many people gave up on college too early because it gets difficult? Every, everything that's worthwhile in life is going to have a quit now moment. And what I love about Eleazar is he didn't quit. I wish I knew how to say this, but I'm going to do the best I can. I really believe that so many things that we will look back on as the most valuable things in our lives were things that we thought about quitting on at some point. I'm in my 35th year here at New Spring. And now as I travel and I speak and I train leaders... I get asked about that. I was speaking, training leaders in Connecticut. I was training actually three teams from two churches in Connecticut, a team in New York City. And these were young leaders pretty much. They're young to me. And so one of the questions that came up a lot was about my tenure here at New Spring. And one of the young men raised his hands and he said, were you ever tempted to go somewhere else? And I get asked that question a lot. I got asked that question being interviewed at a large seminary. Were you ever tempted to go somewhere else? Were you ever tempted to quit? And before I realized what I was saying, I said yes. Especially when things would get tough and brutal. And they did at times. I remember we were trying to relocate out here. <laughs> We only had about 500 people in those days, far smaller than the crowd we have here at this first Wednesday service. And it involved moving 12 miles. It involved all kinds of challenges. It was not a popular move. I can tell you it was a very, very difficult time. And here I am as a leader, and thankfully I was surrounded by other strong leaders. But here I was a leader, and I was trying to think about how we could do the impossible. By the same token, I'm taking fire all the time. I, I, I would hear all kinds of criticisms. And I remember one night, in the very worst of it, I just I, I didn't want to sleep upstairs with Barry Alice because I just knew I, was, I couldn't sleep. So I just laid down on the couch, and I thought about all the problems and the difficulties that we were facing, and all the criticism, and how I wondered if, if it would ever work, and Oh, my goodness, it was just brutal in those days. And about 1.30 in the morning, I got my computer out, and I typed my resignation. I'd never done that before. I typed out my resignation, put it in an envelope, sealed it, laid it on the dining room table, and I was going to come in the next morning and turn it in. You would have just had to have known how difficult that was in those days. But about 4 o'clock in the morning, the Holy Spirit said, why don't you just hang in there another day? And I went down there and tore it up. But what I love about what the Holy Spirit said to me was he didn't say, you know what, why don't you give it five more years? Why don't you give it 10 more years? He said, give it another day. How many times do we need to hear that? 
How, how many people have quit way too early? They, they, they quit at a moment that was difficult and painful and hurtful and they couldn't see the way forward and God comes along and says, why don't you give it one more day? And as I talked to those pastors that were gathered there for me to train, I said, you know, I kept saying, well, maybe I'll go someday, but I can't go now because we're doing this and I can't go now because this has come up. And one day I realized that the sword had taken hold of me. When I was 28 years old, I picked up the sword. I came here as, and ultimately as your pastor, but in time. And here's the thing that I love about this. What, what made me fall in love and want to spend the rest of my ministry here was not the great days. It was not the fun days. It was not the beautiful Kansas weather. It was not all the extraordinary tourist things to do in the city of Wichita. It was none of those things. It was no feel-good moment. In fact, it was the difficult moments. It was the struggles that I went through, how that I picked up the sword, and at some moment the sword took hold of me, and it was hard to know where the fabric of Mark Hoover stopped and the fabric of New Spring Church started. God had made me one with the church. And I think that's how it is with the greatest spiritual battles in your life. Now let's take a few moments and talk about the sword because here the sword is not a, not, a, not, not a sword like hurts people. The sword according to the scriptures is, well, look at this. Ephesians 6 verse 17, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If you are going to do spiritual warfare, if you're going to fight the battles in your life where you can see the objective, but something is between you and the objective and that something is against you. You are going to need the word of God. Your word is not enough. What you picked up in college is not enough. Your experience in life is not enough. You're going to need what God has to say. That's why I preached the message two weeks ago on faith and I said faith sees more and it sees before. You're going to need God's word if you're going to fight spiritual warfare. Now. Let's, let's talk about something for a moment. You remember I said Eliezer picked up the sword, he took hold of the sword, and then the sword took hold of him. What are we talking about in relationship to the Bible? I believe it's this. When you learn the Bible, you're taking hold of the sword. When God's, God's word gets inside you to the place where you obey the word of God and believing that God is right in faith, that is when the word of God will take hold of you. And that's where we need to be. Because at some point, you're going to be so low, you're going to be so stressed that you can't even trust your own judgment. But when you and I begin to obey God's word and trust his word as truth, not just learn it. I mean, thank God for Bible studies. Thank God for listening to messages and teaching. Thank God for the truth that we learn in Christian worship songs. Thank God for all of that. But it's never enough to be a hearer. James said that it's not the hearers of the word that are successful, it's the doers of the word. It is when you learn the word of God and then you put it to work in your life that the sword takes hold of you. It is a challenge to live by the word of God, especially in these days. If you live by God's word, you're gonna be called everything in the books. I mean, they may not call it to your face, but when you go to meet, you go to movies and you see how Christians are portrayed in the movies and you hear the things that politicians are saying and about Christians and you're, you're going to feel like a Neanderthal in our broken 
hell-bent world. It is a challenge to live by God's word. It is a battle. Like I said in a previous series, truth is always uphill. But when it becomes proven in your life, you can't live any other way. And I thank God for that. I, I can't turn back now. I, I, I know I may not be everything God wants me to be. And I may not be the greatest Christian in the world. And yes, I get discouraged. And because of my battle with anxiety, I know what it's like to worry. But as far as this book, as far as God's word, I'm not turning back now. It has been proven true in my life. The sword has taken hold of me. I love I guess maybe because I'm a preacher. But I think no matter who I was, if I was a God follower, I'd love Jeremiah 20. Because I think every God follower feels like quitting sometimes. Jeremiah was called to preach at a difficult time. The people of God in Judah had fallen into idolatry. And Jeremiah, unfortunately, was always having to carry the message that they were going to face judgment. And after being rejected and people were doing terrible things, they were listening to him and going and reporting on what he preached. And even people that were friends of his could not be trusted. And there was a moment in Jeremiah chapter 20 when the priest arrested Jeremiah. Now imagine that. The priest arrested Jeremiah. It wasn't like the atheist came and got him. The priest arrested him and put him into prison in the temple. And Jeremiah poured out his heart to God and he said, he said, God, you tricked me into this job. <laughs> and he went on to talk to God about the difficulties that he experienced. In verse eight, he said, when I speak, the words burst out, violence and destruction I shout. So these messages from the Lord have made me a household joke. But if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in me, in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones, and I'm worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. I love that. Jeremiah said, I wanted to quit. I said I'm never going to speak in his name anymore, but his word burned inside me like a fire. And one of the greatest lines in the Bible, he said, I was tired of quitting. Let me say that one more time. Jeremiah said, I was tired of quitting. Have any of you, in your spiritual journey, taken a detour from God? You just sort of quit on God. It's like I'm tired of trying to follow God. It's too hard. I'm tired of praying. I'm tired of reading my Bible. I'm tired of being in church. I'm tired, and you just for a while quit. You know what you'll discover if you're a true God follower? You'll get tired of quitting. There'll be a moment where it's like, I can't take this quitting anymore. I have to get back into it. So that's what we see in the Eleazar battle. Now, here's the thing. If you're in one of those battles and you're saying, Mark, I don't know if I can hold out much longer. I want you to look at something. Verse 10 says, Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. Now look at this. It says, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. I, I love this story because it doesn't seem to indicate that Eleazar was extraordinarily special. It's just that he refused to quit and the Lord brought about a great victory. Wow, think about that. Let's just let that settle in. He refused to quit and the Lord brought about a great victory. 
It's not like he refused to quit and then he had an aha moment. It's not like he refused to quit and he just kept, you know, he was a little engine that could. It's not that. It's that he kept in there and then the Lord brought about a great victory. You know, I'm perfectly fine with that being my story. I'm perfectly fine when I get to the end of my life for the people to say, well, Mark was nothing special. He didn't have any extraordinary talents. He just stayed in there and then God did what he does. I'm fine with that. Are you fine with that tonight? I don't have to be on the cover of a magazine. I don't have to, I don't have, to have a million followers on Facebook or Instagram. I don't, I don't have to have all that junk. Let, let, let the earthlings, let the earth dwellers do all that kind of crazy stuff. I just want to be, I want to be a, a battler for the king. I, I want to serve the king. And, and here's the deal. Maybe I won't do anything that makes the newspapers, but let me just stay in there and then let God bring the victory. That's, that's enough for me. Is that enough for you tonight? Now look at the second battle, because this is a different kind of battle. What happens when you're challenged about little things. This is a different kind of warfare. In, in the first battle, it was can you stay in there when everything is required? Now it's a question about little things. When I look at Christianity in America today, I'm deeply troubled. Not because it's hard to hear the gospel in America or in the Western world. And I know many of you will watch this sermon. You're not in the Western world. And I'm not sure how things are in other places in the world, but I know where we are here in the United States. The gospel is everywhere. So I'm not troubled about the gospel not being available in the United States. I, I'm troubled that people who follow Christ are weak in their faith because the devil got his nose under the tent. You know, it's the old story about the camel getting his nose under the tent and then before long, whole camel's inside the tent. I think a lot of us are not as strong as we should be because we've allowed little stuff to come into our lives that we know is wrong. But whenever we're questioned about it, it's like, well, it's not really worth any warfare for because it's just little. It doesn't matter much. I want you to read this with me. Verse 11. One time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelite in a field full of lentils, bean field. It's a war in a bean field. The Israelite army fled, but one guy, Shammah, held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. And here's our line again. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, the moment I read this, knowing the stories of King David and his armies, I am amazed at this because the Philistines attack and the army runs away. Now, they don't usually do that. When I read about David's troops, usually when the Philistines attack, they fight. But now, here the whole army runs away except for one guy. Now, why did the soldiers run? Answer, it's just a bean field. 
I mean, after all, I mean, some of you have been in the military. You've been in combat before. I mean, who's going to go back and report to their commanding officer? Wow, we took the bean field. I mean, you know, well, we took the fortress or we took the hill or we took, we took the fort. I mean, that, that, that kind of stuff makes the news favorite. But I mean, who's going to go back and say we took the bean field? So what happens when the Philistines attacked in the bean field? The, the army just said, this is the bean field. Now, the, that's the first question. Why did the soldiers run? Why did Shammah stay? Why did he stay in the bean field? Because the enemy was in the bean field. And see, here is the thing. A lot of us today, we look at things in our world and they are bean fields. We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about the truth about Jesus. We're not talking about the gospel. I mean, we're not talking about any of the fortress, the palace doctrines of the Bible. It's just lifestyle stuff. And we say, well, it really doesn't matter. It's just little stuff. And for some of you who grew up like I grew up, you could say, well, Mark, it sounds to me like you're kind of bordering on legalism. You have never seen anybody who hates legalism as much as I do. I could tell you stories that I've run into through the years of legalistic things that churches have done and preachers have preached about, stuff that didn't matter. It wasn't tethered to the word of God. It was just cultural stuff. And I won't waste your time because I'm almost out of time and I got more preaching today. Okay, here's what I'm saying to you. That's bean fields. It's just a bean field. And one of the things about swinging a sword in a bean field, if the enemy's not there, you're just gonna cut up a lot of good produce. But if the enemy is in the bean field, when the enemy's in the bean field, it turns the bean field into a battlefield. And I'm not going to tell you what you should do with this tonight, but I think you need to think about it and take it to heart because Christians today are letting a lot of junk in their lives and the enemy's in the bean field. A lot of the entertainment today, a lot of what people watch and what people listen to and what people do and the friendships that people hold and the activities that people get into. And, and, and here's the thing. It's draining. It's draining them. It's taking them down the wrong road. It's pulling them away from Christ. And if someone said, said something about it, they would say, oh, it's just a little thing. Okay, it is a bean field. But if the enemy's in the bean field, remember this. If Satan comes for the bean field today, he'll come for the subdivision tomorrow. For all of us here tonight, it's a time for us to look at our lives and say, is there, some, is there some house cleaning that I need to do in my life? It's a battle worth fighting. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, the Bible says, leave no room or foothold for the devil. In other words, give no opportunity to him. Well, this final battle, and I'm through, we've talked about a battle of endurance and how it's important to let God's word get into your life and obey God's word so much so that it controls your life in those difficult times. We talked about the little battles of life. But I want to take you to, I think, my personal favorite out of these three stories. And that's in verse 20. A guy by the name of Benaniah, or Benaiah, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. Now, that's an interesting story because you have a soldier who met the worst enemy, a lion. I can't think of 
too many fights one-to-one that would be worse than having to fight a lion. He has the worst enemy. He has the worst conditions, a snowy day, and in the worst situation, a pit. I mean, you talk about three strikes against someone, worst enemy, worst conditions, worst situation. The Bible tells us that our enemy is Satan. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. One thing about Satan is he's very cruel. And when he attacks you in your life, the message of this particular story is he will attack you on more than one front. It'll be a lion. It'll be a snowy day, and it'll be a pit. And you will find yourself saying, I could handle it if it was just this one thing. I mean, I think about Benaiah. He's got a lion. He's got a lion on a snowy day, and he winds himself, finds himself in a pit. I, I can hear Benaiah saying, you know, I could handle a lion on a clear day, or I could handle a fox on a snowy day. I'm just not sure I can handle a lion on a snowy day. And I've been there, and some of you have been there, where you realize you were dealing with a difficult circumstance, but then it's complicated by something that's in a completely different area of your life that suddenly spins out of control. And while you're trying to get your mind wrapped around that, then some, a, third, a third, the battle opens on a third front. Have you been there? That's not by accident. I really do believe this is one of those areas when you're right over the target. Satan will do everything he can to throw the book at you. I have a pastor friend. He and his wife, I just don't know that I could tell you about a pastor and wife that I know of that I have more respect for and more admiration for than this pastor and wife. He pastors a church that's similar to New Spring. It's smaller. They average, I think, about 1,500 in church. They came here and learned about Kids World and turned... Kids World, they have a Kids World at their church. It's phenomenal. And God has blessed them. This is a guy who loves God. He's the real deal. It's a pastor's wife. It's one of Mary Alice's closest friends. And they took a mall or a part of a mall and they carved out a church campus that looks like it was purpose built. I've spoken there many times. Phenomenal what happened. But my pastor friend got cancer, and he's a fairly young man. And so he went into treatment. He got chemotherapy, I think radiation too. And after a series of treatments, a long period of time, they pronounced him cancer-free. I saw him last October, and we celebrated how that he was cancer-free. He went back home. And just a few days later, when the doctors were examining him, they told him that the cancer had come back. And this time, the treatment was going to be a lot more difficult and a lot longer and a lot more painful. And we were praying for him. Our church prayed for him. While he was going through treatment, 
in a city about 80 miles away. He got the notice from the mall that they were not going to renew the lease. And so now, while he is fighting cancer a second time, he has to figure out where his church is going to be. That's not an accident. This is a church that's changing lives. This is a church that's seeing people say, this is a church that birthed a ministry. They bought a home, a large home, and they started a ministry to women who were hooked on drugs. And the stories that have come out of that ministry have captured the media's attention all over that state. I mean, this is a church changing lives. It is God is working through them. And now all of a sudden the pastor gets cancer. And then when he's pronounced cancer free, he gets cancer again. And while he's in the treatment, they lose their lease. And they have to figure out where they're going to meet with 1,500 people. What do you do when you deal with a lion on a snowy day and the dumb thing runs into a pit? Why does Satan hit us on several fronts? I mean, anybody here today and you would say, well, I could handle the thing with my marriage if it wasn't for the thing at work and I could handle the thing with my health, if it wasn't for my kids. Why, 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 why does that happen? It's simply this. Satan wants to convince you he's going to make everything work against you. He wants, that to be con- he wants that to be in your head. He wants to bluff you. He wants to intimidate you. See, I've learned in my life the damage that Satan does in my life is not so much what he does to me. It's what he can get me to do to myself. And if he can make me believe that everything's going to work against me, I might just give up and not. Do you know the word that stands out to me? Let me read this verse again. Benaiah, on a snowy day, chased the lion down into a pit and killed it. Chased? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I could have done that. I might have thought, you know what? This is not a good day to do lion hunting. Maybe another day. And I, st- I sure don't know that I would chase the thing. I might just stand around and say, well, maybe he'll run off if I leave him alone. I said at the beginning of this message, if you give me five more minutes, I said at the beginning of this message that I want this to be a real message and not just a metaphor. You know, we hear songs about devil chasers and all that, and I, I like some of those, but what, what, what does it really mean? What does it mean when you've got attacks on multiple fronts? What does it mean to chase the lion into the pit? You guys know I was in Israel back in June. I was invited by the government of Israel to come over and meet with some of the leaders and had a wonderful time, met with the foreign minister, met with some of the ambassadors and saw things in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv. But then a day came when they asked us to get on the kind of bus-like vehicle and they took us south all the way to the Gaza border to a crossing. I mean, you can just, just a few yards over there is Egypt and this is Israel and 800 trucks go back and forth from Israel into Gaza and from Gaza into Israel. And at this crossing, we met with the chief of police who was responsible for making sure that nothing was on any of those trucks that might cause damage at that hot spot in the world. 
Everything in that crossing was pretty well constructed of four feet concrete. I was there, you could hear the sounds of the diesel trucks lined up. Every truck had to be searched, every day. Many men and women with automatic weapons were walking around us. And when the chief of police was walking us around his compound, just right outside his office, he said, there's the bunker. Now he said, if we hear the sound of a siren, it means that rockets are coming in from Gaza. He said, if a rocket comes in in Tel Aviv and you're at a sidewalk cafe, you can finish your coffee. But he said, just want you to know that if the sirens go off, we have 15 seconds to get in that bunker. He walked around his compound, and I'll be honest with you, Mary Alice and I were just a little nervous. And he would show us gashes in the concrete. So that, that's where mortar fire hit. He himself had been wounded three times. Long-time IDF soldier. We asked him, what do, you, what do you call a win? If you've got 800 trucks every day going back and forth, what's a win for you? And this hardened Israeli soldier is probably a little younger than myself, actually began to cry. And he said, a win for me is if all of my people get home safe tonight. He said, you see, we live in abnormal. And we have to find normal in abnormal. The moment he said that to me, it fell all over me because I know what it's like to be in a scenario where it's a lion in a pit on a snowy day and it's abnormal. I believe chasing the lion is finding normal and abnormal. It's even though you're in the battle of your life. You get up in the morning, you shower, you go to work, you keep your promises. If you're married, you love your wife, you love your husband, you raise your kids, you get on with your life. Somehow you find a way to have normal and abnormal. You trust God and say, I don't know how God is going to get me through this. I don't know how it's going to resolve. It may turn into an Eleazar battle where I just need to stay in there and hang in there. But by the grace of God, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and do what God has called me to do, I'm going to find a way to have normal in abnormal. Can I tell you just one more thing about that trip and I'll be through? We left there and we went to a border town in Israel called Sarat. It was a beautiful town and the mayor showed us around the town. I was just amazed. It had the most beautiful parks and playgrounds for children. Now you got to realize we're on the Gaza border. The first thing she showed us was this large chain link enclosure of all kinds of distorted cylindrical metal. They were the leftovers of rockets that had been sent into Surat. And it was, it was what we would call a junkyard of rockets. And she pointed to all the houses. She said, all the houses have rocket shelters. And I remember as she took us out into the fields outside the city, 
and all, many of the fields were still smoking from balloon bombs. I got back to my hotel room in Jerusalem that night, opened up Fox News, not, not, a, not a Jerusalem source, but a U.S. source. I opened up Fox News and found out there had been 14 balloon bombs in the area where I'd been in that day. Do you know what they did in the parks? They took the metal from those rockets that had been fired at them and they sculpted and crafted the most beautiful musical instruments and statues of beautiful, beautiful musical instruments in the parks where their kids played. I remember seeing this beautiful statue of a cello made out of spent rocket shells that were fired at the city. And I thought to myself, I couldn't help but think about what does the enemy think when the enemy sees that they've taken the rockets that they sent over to kill them and they've crafted them into statues where their kids play. I thought if I was an enemy, that would really discourage me. And I'll tell you one of the things, if you want to discourage, if you want to chase the devil, you just take the attack that he has made on your life and by the grace of God say, God, what can I do to turn this for good? Because see, here's the thing. Although the devil wants to tell you that all things are working against you, you know, Romans 8, 28 says, in all things, God works for good. If you want to chase the devil, you just find abnormal in normal, if I'm normal and abnormal, and you find a way by the grace of God to be thankful for what God is doing in your life and turn the ugliness of his attack into the beauty of a child of God who follows him. May God bless you. Good night.